0: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, an Atlanta-based family of a woman who died at Los Angeles Cedars-Sinai Hospital back in 2016 say her death could have been prevented, and now the family has filed a civil rights lawsuit.
2: My hope is that by filing this lawsuit and by making the public understand the manner in which Kira's civil rights were neglected, denied, and ultimately resulted in her death, that institutions will step up to the table and step up to the plate in significant ways and make substantial institutional changes to protect mothers and women of color.
0: That is Charles Johnson IV, will revisit our conversation with him in 2018 as he talks about his wife Kira. Also, later in the show, a health policy expert who's also a parent is advocating to make all of America's school buses electric. Why? Well, she says there are many negative health impacts school buses have on children's health. All those coming all those conversations coming up, but first this, numbers from the Atlanta based CDC reveal Georgia's abortion rate has risen in recent years. As WABE's, WABE's Jess Mador reports, national physician and midwife organizations are speaking out after the leaked Supreme Court opinion that would overturn abortion protections.
1: The groups include the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It says in a statement it's deeply concerned about the draft opinion striking down abortion protections.
0: The group says the ability of patients to access safe, legal abortion is critical
1: for their health. Also opposing an abortion ban is the American College of Nurse Midwives. The group says outlawing abortion would worsen the country's maternal mortality
0: crisis. And the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, a group for obstetricians with special expertise in high-risk pregnancies, says such pregnancies are more likely to result in serious and fatal medical complications. Jess Mador, WABE News. In other news, the Georgia High School Association Executive Committee unanimously voted to ban transgender athletes from playing on teams that match their gender identities. Lily Oppenheimer has more. The vote amended the association's bylaw to read, "A student's sex is determined by the sex noted on his or her birth certificate." Governor Brian Kemp tweeted that he's proud to have championed the effort. He signed a bill that passed at the last minute during this year's legislative session. That left the decision of how trans students could compete up to the GHSA. In a statement, Jeff Graham, the executive director of Georgia Equality, said the move will harm kids who want to be themselves. The GHSA oversees athletics for hundreds of public and private Georgia high schools. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And a bipartisan group of Georgia lawmakers is asking congressional budget writers to reject the Biden administration's plan to close a training facility for military pilots. Five Georgia congressmen led by Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock sent a letter asking Congress to restore almost $12 million to keep open the training center in Savannah. Now, President Joe Biden's 2023 budget request would eliminate funding for the Air National Guard facility that trains both reservists and active duty fighter fighter pilots. Now, this puts the president at odds with Warnock and fellow Democratic Senator John Ossoff. They signed the April 28th letter along with Democratic Representative Sanford Bishop and Republican Representatives Buddy Carter and Austin Scott. No relation to me. And finally, this Sunday is Mother's Day. If you're looking for some gift ideas, here's what not to get. Oh, great. Thanks.
3: And Mom, although I believe Mother's Day is a BS holiday, unlike true holidays like my half-birthday or May the Fourth Be With You, I, too, made you a mug. Oh, thank you for
4: trying.
0: <laughs> Come on, y'all. Let's be better for old Mom. No mugs. Unless your mom is a fan of Closer Look, because we have tons of mugs. Email me, rose at wabe.org. I'm serious. I need to get rid of these mugs. This is Closer Look. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. As we just mentioned a moment ago, an Atlanta-based family of a woman who died at Los Angeles Cedars-Sinai Hospital back in 2016, well, they say her death could have been prevented. Keira Johnson bled to death just hours after giving birth to Char- her her son and Charles Johnson IV's second son. Now, Charles, Keira's husband, is suing Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. And yesterday, during a press conference, alleged Keira's death was due to a cult culture of racism at the Los Angeles hospital.
2: Because of the things that we have learned through this incredibly painful process, there's no doubt in my mind that my wife would be here today and be here Sunday celebrating Mother's Day with her boys if she was a Caucasian woman. The hard facts that we have uncovered speak directly to the point that there is a culture of racism that is rampant at Cedar sinai Medical Center. And the reality is that on April 12th of 2016, when we walked into Cedar sinai Hospital for what we expected to be the happiest day of our lives, the greatest risk factor that Kira Dixon Johnson faced was racism.
0: And again, that is Charles Johnson IV from a press conference held yesterday. A trial is scheduled for next week. I spoke with Charles Johnson back in 2018 as part of our series on maternal mortality. Tell me about the first time you met Kira.
1: (laughs) You couldn't ask a better question. So uh, we were actually at a birthday party that was thrown by a mutual friend. And I was on my way out. And as I looked to my right. I see this just beautiful woman sitting there with this look on her face. She's got her arms folded, and she just looks like she is not happy to be here. And I'll never forget that uh, Frankie Beverly, Before I Let You Go, was playing. Isn't Frankie always playing Listen, when you— Frankie will get it done. <laughs> if nobody else gets it done, you can rely on Frankie. So as I was walking past, you know— I kicked into my Billy D mode <laughs> and I just started singing it out loud and she just, that frown just turned completely upside down and when I saw that smile, it was over so we chatted briefly, the, a group of friends that I was with um, was were, were leaving and so um, I asked for her number, she refused to give it to me but I actually gave her mine and um, shortly after, a couple of days later, she reached out to me and the rest is history.
0: The rest is... When did, you, when did you all get married?
1: We actually got married in um, in August of 2014. Uh,
0: when your first son, Charles V... Correct. ...was born... Were there any complications either while Kira was carrying or or after delivery? Was there any complications with your first son?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So great question. So Kira had, with both ways actually had um, amazing pregnancies. She was very healthy through both pregnancies. Charles uh, was born through an emergency Mm C-section, but only because uh, as Kira was having contractions, uh, his heart rate was dropping. And so they had to expedite him. And when he was born, he was perfectly healthy, perfectly fine. We like to joke and say that he just like, he just wanted to make a dramatic entrance. Mm -hmm. So he was born this um, amazing little guy, eyes wide open and uh, exceptionally healthy. And Kira had had a, uh, a very, very on schedule and healthy recovery from her first birth.
0: And when she was carrying your youngest Langston? same thing? Yeah,
1: absolutely, Rose. So Kira was, ex- we're talking about a woman that wasn't just in good health, Rose. We're talking about a woman that was in exceptional health. We're talking about a woman that ran marathons, that race cars, that was a skydiver. Um, we're not talking about getting up in the air with somebody strapped to your back. We're talking about jump out the plane by yourself, skydiver. Um, and she had a very, very healthy pregnancy with, uh, with Langston. We were, all signs indicated that her and the baby were both exceptionally healthy.
0: And uh, it, it seems to uh, assumptions that you all had health care, you had adequate health care, prenatal c- coverage, all that. You had all that.
1: Absolutely. So when we talk about I'm glad that you talk about this. And I don't want to go get, get too far ahead of this. But when we talk about this maternal death crisis in the United States, oftentimes the women that get uh, categorize people make assumptions about about who they are and what they are and in Kira's case we're talking about a woman that was middle class that had adequate health care and not only that gave birth at what was supposed to be one of the best hospitals not only in the United States but in the world in Cedar Sinai
0: this is out in, in Los Angeles. in Los Angeles correct draws on April 12th 2016 you're all in in Los Angeles at Cedar Sinai Medical Center it was a scheduled c-section for Langston correct yes when did you realize there was some distress with Kira?
1: Absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, we went in the 12th for what was supposed to be a routine scheduled C-section. Uh, we were just uh, just overwhelmed by uh, welcoming this amazing um, bundle into our lives. And Langston, and you know, who was exceptionally healthy, Kira shortly after that was transferred to recovery. Shortly after being in there, I was on the side of her bed, and as I'm— on the side of the bed, the catheter bag um, that was right on, on her right began to turn pink with blood. And that was the first sign to me that something wasn't quite right. And at that point, I brought that to the staff at Cedar sinais attention.
0: What was their response, reaction?
1: Well, there were they were concerned. They came in, the staff came in, uh, they expressed concern that there may be some, some internal bleeding. They examined her physically. They ordered a series of tests, uh, including ultrasounds, and including, uh, very importantly, at that point, a CT scan that was supposed to be performed, STAT. And this was uh, shortly before, shortly after 3 o'clock.
0: When did you or you all become really concerned in terms of this is life-threatening for your wife?
1: So, to be honest... Kira uh, was the closest thing that I had ever met to a superhero. So for me, even though there was a lot of concern about going on, it didn't cross my mind that this was potentially life-threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was so healthy, because she was in exceptional health, and because we are in we are at Cedar sinai Hospital, we're concerned. But the fact that I would walk in with a woman that is exceptionally healthy— and not walk out with her didn't quite dawn on me
0: but there is a point where something wasn't right correct absolutely and and you spoke to doctors head head doctor whatever there we get to this point where there's something seriously
1: wrong right absolutely and so um what you have to understand is that the the thing that's the most painful about cure situation is we were at Cedar Sinai, and they allowed her condition to t- to deteriorate for more than ten hours before they took action. The, as I mentioned, there was a there was a C section. I'm sorry, a CT scan that was ordered stat. Four o'clock comes. Five o'clock comes. There's no CT scan. Doctors come in. They assess her. They say, "Oh, we'll just wait and see."
0: Wait for what? Did they tell you what you were waiting for?
1: They said that, well, maybe the situation will resolve itself. Her condition is continuing to deteriorate. She's losing color. She's in pain. Her blood work is coming back. The tests that they're running are coming back and showing clear signs that she's losing blood. The ultrasounds that that they're performing are showing an increasing amount of fluid in her abdomen, yet nothing was done. No CT scan. So now there was so time goes by myself our family was advocating what are we going to do we're going to take her back surgery what are we going to do and they just continued to have us wait until at one point you know I'm begging and pleading for them to take action and we were told even at one point that that my wife's just not a priority
0: who told you that
1: uh the staff at Cedar sinai
0: You said this went on for ten hours.
1: Correct. So, time goes by. um, They're ordering more tests, more labs. Um, They're even insisting that they do a blood transfusion. And so, from a husband's standpoint, a patient advocate standpoint, my question is: Okay, you're doing all these things, but where's the CT scan that was ordered hours ago? That never came. Until. It wasn't until finally after midnight that they finally took Kira back for surgery, and at which point when they opened her up, there were three and a half liters of blood in Kira's abdomen, and she coded immediately.
0: Charles, when the, help, when the center, when Cedars Sinai Medical Center staff comes to you and tells you that your wife has died. I know you play that in your mind over and over. I'm sorry. Um, what was your, uh, I, I feel silly asking you what was going through your mind.
1: I'll describe it the best way I can. Um, it was shock rose I as I mentioned I never thought that this was a conceivable outcome Um, you know I remember this was around one o'clock in the morning we'd been there all day Uh, we were put into a waiting room and the doctors come down this hall and they deliver this news and I remember just being in shock. I remember I was there with my mother-in-law, with my brother-in-law, with Kira's aunt and her cousin, and it all came out, made the trip across the country to participate in what we were expecting to be a celebration in the birth of Langston. I just remember my family being hysterical and just looking around and everything being quiet and almost in slow motion as this news set in. and. um I remember blacking out. I'll be transparent. I was furious. um, Mm -hmm. And as you can only expect, and and really in disbelief. It was unlike any other feeling I've ever had. It was just this onslaught of emotions and disbelief that I was just kind of bombarded by.
0: If you're just tuning in, my guest is Charles Johnson, and our conversation centers around his wife, Kira, who died after delivering their second son, Langston. Um, Kira seemingly bled to death correct what did the what did hospital officials tell you
1: um so that's one of the things that we're dealing with is that um right now we have taken a civil action against cedars and a big part of that and i want to be clear is that for us this is about answers because we were never given a clear explanation about what happened to my wife and in our pursuit of justice on our behalf, we hope to get answers to what actually happened, why this happened. But most importantly, Rose, prevent what happened to Kira from happening to other women.
0: You feel like they just ignored the pleas of you and, and your family in terms of what was happening to your wife.
1: You Absolutely. Were just
0: simply ignored.
1: Absolutely. I don't understand why, but what I do understand is that. In this country, at a hospital like Cedar Sinai, a woman should not walk into a hospital in exceptional health and not walk out. Um, This has been described to us by medical experts that have reviewed her records, um, that have looked at the situation as not only a medical tragedy, but a medical catastrophe. Meaning that everything that went wrong did
0: um, and so. We just want to note that Closer Look reached out to Cedars Sinai Medical Center for a statement. We have not received one, but they did offer a statement to People magazine, which it said Cedars Sinai called Keir's death, quote, a tragedy, and says that Charles and Hatchett are demonstrating important leadership in raising awareness of preventable maternal deaths. Now, we should note that Hatchett is your mom, Atlanta based judge Glenda Hatchett, who has, of course, the court TV show. Um, they're acknowledging that you're raising awareness about preventable maternal deaths. They have not acknowledged any role in this, obviously, because there's a lawsuit. Correct. That's what you said you want to come out of this, that it should not happen again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So for me, I have to be transparent. And um, like a lot of Americans, before this tragedy came to my doorstep, I was unaware That we are in the midst of a maternal death crisis in the United States. For those of you all who are listening who are unaware, the United States leads the civilized world in women dying from preventable causes related to pregnancy. So what that means is that statistically speaking, you are safer giving birth in Kazakhstan than you are in the United States.
0: How old was Kira?
1: Kira was 38 years old.
0: Charles, little Charles in, Mm -hmm. in Langston. Well, let's back up. How is Langston?
1: Langston is amazing. Langston is amazing. He will be uh two in April. Um both of my sons are just uh cure blessing with two amazing, amazing gifts. And they have all the best the best parts of their mom.
0: How old was Charles?
1: Charles was eighteen months old at the time. My older son Charles was eighteen months old.
0: Comprehension at that at that young of age for a child regarding death can be complex, confusing. What has he said since then? Where does he say where's mommy? And uh, how do you handle that, Charles?
1: Um, that is in all of this, that is the most challenging thing. And my wife deserved better. My sons deserved better. And so the statistics are, 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 terrifying, but Rose, what I want people to understand is there's no statistic that could quantify what it's like when a two year old wakes up in the middle of the night asking for his mother, there's no matrices that can grasp the magnitude of a three year old asking where his mother is and you trying to explain to him well mommy's in heaven and him saying, Well I wanna go too. And so we're talking about the impacts that this has on our families. Um and there's nothing that I can do to bring my wife back. Um but it is important that we do everything that we can. Um as long as we can, as often as we can. That's why I want to thank you and thank your staff for bringing awareness to this issue to make sure that this does not continue to happen to other families.
0: You have become uh, an advocate, an ambassador in terms of campaign and awareness for this. Is this something you want to do as long as you can for the rest of your life?
1: As long as there is breath in my body, we will fight. We will fight on behalf of Kira We will fight on behalf of the thousands of women that lose their lives every year. And let me be clear about this, too. There is no—let me be crystal clear. There is no acceptable rate for maternal mortality in the United States. But if we can first, like you said, raise awareness and then work with groups, work with advocates— work with hospitals, work with healthcare providers to find comprehensive solutions, we feel that we can make a substantial change. And so that's what we're doing now.
0: Charles, as we wrap up, how does this advocacy work help you? And did you, and are you, and if it's personal, I apologize, seeking the help? Did you get the help that you needed?
1: That's an excellent question. That's probably one of the, in all the media (laughs) interviews that I've been fortunate enough to do, that's one of the best questions that I've been asked. And the answer is, without a doubt, this work is so helpful and so therapeutic for me because I feel like I can't do anything to bring my wife back. But if I can help to make sure that we send other mothers home with their babies, that is the highest tribute that I can pay Kira. That is the highest tribute that I can pay her. And for myself, you know, this is a process. Grief is a process. I don't have all the answers. I'm continually working to figure it out. Um, But I'm I'm fortunate to be able to, uh, for people like yourself, that have given us platforms and have shared their resources to help us spread the word and make a difference.
0: And there is a website?
1: Absolutely. So you can follow us on social media, all social media at uh, the number four, K-I-R-A, the number four mom, 4Kira4Moms, four four and it's also 4 4 momscom You keep up with all the work that we're doing to uh, bring it into this maternal mortality crisis in the United States.
0: Charles, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your family story, and, and we really appreciate it. We, we really do. Thank, thank you, you so, so
1: much. much. Thank you. Anytime. From 2018,
0: Charles Johnson IV talking about his wife Kira who died in 2016 at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles the Johnson family now suing the hospital in a separate civil rights c- case just announced yesterday this is closer look <music> Closer look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Workers across the nation have been unionizing from Amazon workers to Starbucks workers to Apple workers. In fact, some call it the Great Resurgence. Now, here in our region, more precisely, Apple Workers in the Apple Store located at Cumberland, Cumberland Mall is the first Apple Store of the company's 272 retail locations to file for a union election. That vote is scheduled soon. But let's talk about this whole process. Joining me now is Ed Barlow, president of the CWA Communications Workers of America Local 3204. He's also active in the Atlanta labor community as a member of the AFL-CIO Atlanta Leaders of Tomorrow and the Atlanta Coalition of Black Trade Units and Atlanta Jobs with Justice. Thanks for taking the time, Mr. Barlow. We appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's go back. A lot of folks don't know that the community. Communication Workers of America actually go back like to the 1940s, right? You've had some names, you know, some different reiterations, but you all go back a while. Yes.
4: Yes. There's over the years we started off as mainly a telecommunication union, but we over the years uh, gained flight attendants, public sector workers, nurses, firemen, policemen. Uh, so we migrated over the years from just being a telecommunication uh, union or known as a telecommunication union.
0: Let me ask you this with whether it's Starbucks or, or Apple or, or some of the other, and you got Lyft drivers and, and, and Uber drivers, this movement of folks, certain industries, certain sectors from certain corporations looking to unionize. Many folks say the pandemic exposed a lot of issues for them, and that's why they need unions here. You agree with that?
4: Yes. Yes, I, I definitely agree with it. With the pandemic, you had a lot of workers that was fortunate enough to be able to work from home but you had others that didn't have that luxury. Uh, so therefore conditions as far as safety was a, uh, came into play. Uh, so workers wanted more safety features in place at work uh, or and felt that they wanted to be compensated more for putting their lives in danger by coming into the office or their particular work environments on a daily basis and having a chance of taking that virus home to their family members and loved ones. So. Uh, I definitely believe and agree with workers that the pandemic played a role in that.
0: And I just want to clarify for our listeners as well, when we talk about the Communications Workers of America, this is broad, but you all have a lot of sectors under this, correct?
4: Yes, yes. We represent public sector employees, uh, flight attendants, uh, journalists, a whole gamut of different uh, employers from employees from across uh, different sectors of work.
0: Now, this Apple Store, which is at Cumberland Mall here in the Atlanta area, this is the first in the nation. But actually, I think I read two more Apple Stores are considering. Is that correct?
4: Uh, Yes, that would be correct. But it's actually more than just two. Uh, There's there's many across the country. Uh, I don't want to go into naming because, of course, Uh, There's fear of employers retaliating, Mm -hmm. terminating people for trying to organize and things of that nature. Uh, But we're definitely in talks with other workers at various locations across the country uh, who will be filing the same petition with the NLRB uh, here pretty soon.
0: And before we take our listeners through the process of of even getting to a vote, I want to read this closer look, reach out to Apple and we received the following statement. Quote, we are fortunate to have incredible retail team members and we deeply value everything they bring to Apple. We are pleased to offer very strong compensation and benefits for full time and part time employees, including health care, tuition reimbursement, new paternal leave, paid family leave, annual stock grants and many other benefits. Close quote. And the spokesperson also wanted to add that the minimum in terms of pay is twenty dollars an hour for Apple store workers. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, Let's take our listeners. Well, let me ask you, what's your response to that statement?
4: Oh, well, you know, we, the workers definitely appreciate the salaries and things being offered by Apple. Uh, If they didn't, they would not have applied for the job and they would not be working there. They simply believe that going union and uh, becoming unionized, uh, that they have a voice at work. Uh, to be able to negotiate with Apple to make things even better at work for Apple.
0: Now, let's take our, our listeners through the process here. Employees at that, and you can use this Apple store because this is the one so far that we know will have this first scheduled vote. They reached okay. out to you all and apply for and send in an application saying, hey, we'd like for you all to be, you know, represent us, but there's another process that they have to go through, right? So take us through that. Yes.
4: Yes. So the employees at the Cumberland location actually began unionizing themselves, uh, such as other workers across the country. You know, it all begins with conversation at work or amongst coworkers. Uh, So those employees, which I applaud and, you know, uh, you know, uh, I I applaud them for Mm -hmm. coming together and being strong to even talk about the union at work. Uh, But they did. It did come a point where they did reach out to CWA for assistance. Uh, of course, we've been organizing and you know helping workers for years, so we knew the process uh, and we knew what to tell them as far as how to get to you know the, the process of filing for a petition.
0: Now, does that include managers or just those who are are not in a in a managerial position, or can anyone vote yeah, to, to go ahead?
4: Yeah, it, it won't include uh management employees. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as defined by the NLRB. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it'll be your mainly your craft employees, uh, the technicians in the store that work behind the scenes on repairing devices, uh, and the uh, sales reps that you see on the you know on the floor when you walk in as helping sell products.
0: Okay, so they then just decide that they take a vote. Is it a certain? Is it just a simple majority? How does this work? Okay.
4: So what happens is we file a petition with the NLRB, Mm -hmm. and in order to do so, you got to have 30% of the workers uh, to sign off saying they want to be recognized as a union with their employer. Uh, So we had uh, over 30%, we actually had over 70% of the workers at the Cumberland Retail Store to sign off on these cards, seeking union representation through CWA. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're very proud uh, to have had those numbers before filing. Uh, So the process going forward would be uh, going through the actual election process to win the election and to be recognized by the uh, company as having a union, in particular CWA, as the official bargaining representative. Fifty percent of those workers plus one would give us the majority, which is needed to win that
0: election. That's full time and part time or just full time?
4: Uh, Full time and part time employees.
0: So 50 percent plus one. And then the next process is after that? Sitting
4: down at at the table, negotiating a contract for these workers. Uh, And we hope to be doing that very soon. Uh, The NLRB, along with the company, came up with the dates of June 2nd through June 4th will be the dates that the employees will be voting. And we expect to get the results uh, right after the voting polls close.
0: In your initial conversation, what can you share in terms of why the workers felt the need that they at least wanted to 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 explore this? Were there any I don't want to call them allegations, were there some concerns? Well there's was there anything happening that would might have been unfair, or they just simply want the protections in place?
4: They they simply just want to have a voice at work. Um as, as we said earlier, you know, Apple offers uh, competitive wages, benefits, and a number of other things, but these employees do not have a voice uh, in negotiating their wages, uh, raises, uh, the the number of things that are offered to them by Apple, and they simply just want to see that the table. They're the employees that are actually making the money for this company. Uh, they interfacing daily with the customers. Uh, continuing to put their lives at risk uh, because we're still facing a COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So they simply want to have a voice at the table opposed to just being told what they're going to be offered.
0: Are there any guidelines that they have to follow in terms of how they even seek someone's vote or there some things they can and cannot do? And how active can you all be in prior to the vote? Do you have access to the employees, or you all sort of stay out of that and let the employees handle that?
4: Uh, Well, we meet with the employees on a regular, ongoing basis outside of work. Uh, You know, of course, Apple is not wanting this thing to go through. They're not wanting these employees to unionize. Uh, So, of course, they're not going to invite us into the store and give us access to be able to talk to the employees. So we do a lot uh, of meeting outside of work, uh, conference calls, Things of that nature, and uh, we have a way for the employees to contact us at any time should they have any questions or concerns they want to bring to our
0: attention. Based on your experience in helping other employees from other industries, uh, has there ever been a some concern? And I imagine there might have been in terms of retaliation or just a you know some type of tension in the workplace for. Those that may want to unionize and those that don't, how do you Absolutely. how do you how do you all suggest they work through that? We
4: educate them. So one of the first things we do is when the employees come to us, we tell them all about you know how corporations or companies look to fire people, especially what they consider to be the head of the group, mm-hmm. uh, to set an example to do scare tactics to scare everyone else off. So we educate them on being prepared for that. And, you know, we let them know things to do at work to protect themselves. You know, uh, I don't want to give out too many details because, of course, you know, the company is our opposition in its organizing campaign. Uh, But we definitely educate the employees so that they know what to expect and uh, what to say and what not to say, you know, to prevent an employee from figuring out who's the ringleader is until we're ready to file with the NLRB, mm-hmm. uh, we keep as much as possible on the raft until we actually file that petition. So that's why in the public, you know, nobody really heard anything was going on with Apple until we got the petition filed.
0: And that is, that's is—that's the first step is getting the petition filed. Yes. When you Absolutely. look at uh, Starbucks employees, um, which, you know, I think it's more than a dozen at this point, you know, have already be considered successfully unionized. And then we hear about the efforts with Amazon. Are you optimistic then that Apple can follow along in the same, some Apple stores can follow along the same path
4: here? Oh, I'm a thousand percent confident that this NLRB election uh, for Apple retail employees to be recognized will pass. Uh, We're preparing here in the local to welcome them on board to make sure they know how to get in contact with us here at the local uh, for union representation, uh, for any things they may need. Uh, these employees are very eager to be unionized. They did most of the groundwork without us, you know, before they even sought, uh, you know, assistance from us. They were talking amongst each other and just trying to figure it all out or whatnot. So we stepped in and we we helped them along the way.
0: And, hey, Mr. Barlow, as we wrap up, I want to get your thoughts on this because, as you know, are, labor unions are pretty – probably have a little bit more influence in certain parts of the region. I think for many of us, we think of, you know, probably New York, definitely in the Jersey area, maybe Philadelphia. Um, but based on the state, can that be a challenge too? because there are sometimes there's state laws. And as it relates to employment and labor issues, that really may not even protect a worker if, if they are in, in a union. Is that a concern for you as well?
4: You're absolutely correct. Uh, here in Georgia in particular, we're what's called a right to work state. Meaning unions got a right to exist, workers got a right to choose to belong to the union or not belong to the union. However, workers that don't belong to the union still entitled to the same rights and protections as the workers that do belong to the union. Mm -hmm. So anything the unions negotiate uh, in regards to wages, benefits, uh, safety issues, uh, educational assistance, uh, the non-members of the unions are entitled to those same things as well. Uh, so, yes, it make it a little harder mm-hmm. uh, in the South, but I believe we're stronger in the South when people choose to join, opposed to being forced to, to join a union just because they work for a company that's uh, recognized or, or uh, represented by a union.
0: And finally, it's been reported that this vote for this Apple store will take place in June. Is that accurate? Is that true?
4: Yes, June 4th through June. I'm sorry, June 2nd through June. 4th and we expect to get the results right after the voting polls close
0: and then on to the next phase
4: we will be celebrating come June 4th
0: Well, we'll have you back to see what the results are and then we'll talk about that whatever happens Ed Barlow, President of CWA Communications Workers of America Local 3204 thank you so much for taking the time Mr. Barlow answering the questions I really appreciate it
4: thank you, thank you for having me
0: And Closer Look continues here from WABE. I'm Rose Scott in Atlanta. According to Clean Air Trust, children who ride diesel-fueled school buses are exposed 5 to 15 times more to air toxins than the general population. We also know that other studies suggest a typical diesel bus emits more than 200,000 pounds of greenhouse gases into the air. And there are a lot of efforts to tackle school bus pollution. Now, we do know that the Biden administration is pushing to make diesel-powered school buses a thing of the past. And here locally, Fulton County transportation officials recently purchased the first all-electric school bus in the state with assistance from the Alternative Fuels Bond Fund and the Southern Company. It's a start, but there are also other factors to consider when talking about moving to electric school buses. Almeida Cooper is a health policy expert who is also a parent, and she formerly served as the general counsel and corporate secretary for the Morehouse School of Medicine. She is now the national field manager for Moms Clean Air Force, and she joins me now. Welcome, Ms. Cooper. I appreciate it.
3: Oh, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Now, we know about the environmental concerns, obviously, in terms of our air pollution, but you say, look, there's some health risk for our, our children who are riding these buses every day. Um, When did all this sort of start getting you to want to become an advocate for this, for getting rid of the the school buses?
3: Well, uh, when I joined Moms Clean Air Force, one of the reasons that I joined was because I was really passionate about clean air for children and their health. My prior uh, first chapter of my professional life, I was a healthcare lawyer, so I've been concerned about healthcare you know, throughout my entire professional career. And electric school buses are so important because they do not have any tailpipe admissions like diesel fuel buses do. And we know that there's really nothing good about tailpipe pollution. It's known to be a human carcinogen. It may even affect brain development, which is completely inconsistent with why someone would be sending their child to school.
0: And you all have said that. Listen, understand this too. This is especially cr- critical for children whose lungs are still developing because because they're riding the buses. Uh, but let me ask you: Do you think, even with all the concerns and and what you've said is absolutely correct, no one uh, can can you know counter that? But are we seeing the movement? I mean. School districts will say that's great. There's money involved. Is the movement at a point now where you think this is something that can actually get done and moving that all school buses will be electric? That's, you know, that for some districts, just making sure they have desks and other things for their kids and and supplies is, is an issue. So how would you suggest funding this?
3: Well, one of the things I want to make sure that our listeners are aware of is that last year when the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed, part of that law was uh, they allocated $5 billion to help school districts acquire electric school buses, including the necessary infrastructure. And from what I can understand, although the EPA has not yet issued the specifics of how the program will work, that could mean $50 million in the state of Georgia so uh, we want to be sure that parents know so they can let their school districts know that this is an opportunity to get experience with an electric school bus and it's such there's no substitute for not having you know dirty diesel pollution when our children are riding buses just to and from school
0: what do you say the folks say that you know we we agree with you in terms of the health benefits but understand that electric buses cost about and this is through our research three times more than diesel buses? First of all, is that true? you believe that? Do they cost about three times more than diesel fuel buses?
3: Well, I'm not an authority on what buses cost. All buses are expensive. But I do believe that when you are thinking about our children, and for example, asthma is the leading cause, chronic disease among children in this country, and it is worsened by diesel fuel buses. And children are on buses it affects them where they live, where they learn, and where they play. So I don't believe that there's any substitute for saying we have to find a way and make it a priority to fund electric school buses and the infrastructure that's necessary to protect our children.
0: Would you feel better also if there was some policy, some legislation behind that that would require, this is is a political question for you, that would require... Maybe starting with public schools that they rec- that they have electric school buses would that make you feel a bit better because then you know it's going to happen.
3: Well, i I would be excited if there were a way to require all school buses, all school districts, to have electric school buses because it is so positive for our children who are riding and their bus drivers, you know, and the, that are riding on school buses. I don't know if that's possible, but even if it's not, because we have this funding that's being made available and because we're raising awareness among parents and making sure that no school district is left out, we have to do everything that we can right now. We're not gonna wait until some point in the future.
0: I mentioned Fulton County schools, they've at least to my knowledge, I think they have one. (laughs) So that's a start. Um, But when you look at districts like Atlanta Public Schools, large Gwinnett County, large DeKalb County, and also you look at districts that are also faced with other what they call wraparound services, needs for their students, particularly of students that are in their households that are near at the poverty level, and there are so many other resources that they need. So when folks say we understand that, but we have to look at that first level that our students need, which, of course, is education and those wraparound services Um, for some, which is as simple as as even having, you know, clothing, proper clothing to wear when the weather changes. There's, There's so many optics around this. So are you willing to accept maybe if they can do this in small phases?
3: I think we have to start wherever we can. And if we start with one bus and people realize the benefit, I think we'll be able to make more progress. The other uh, concern that we have at Moms Clean Air Force is that children who live in low income, low wealth income neighborhoods are much more likely to be impacted by pollution. Often their school districts and their neighborhoods are near highways where the worst pollution is. And I mean, I think everyone knows about how our traffic is here in atlanta mm-hmm. so we want to find ways to to make it happen and we want to take advantage of every funding opportunity that exists and i w- i keep coming back to this this funding that's going to be available through epa and that mm-hmm. they will be announcing shortly because it's going to provide funding not only for buses but for the infrastructure so At- That's really important. And also, I just want to mention that when uh, what we've heard from EPA is that it's not going to be a complicated process Mm -hmm. of the rebate program that they will have so that even school uh, districts that have low resources uh, will be able to access this money.
0: In fact, we have a clip here from Vice President Kamala Harris, who recently announced that additional funding to the EPA for the new new clean school bus program, which does provide a lot of money. I want to play this for you.
3: $17 million in grants will complement the $5 billion for clean school buses that we secured, thank you again, in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Our transportation sector has reached a turning point. We are all in the midst of a turning point. We have the technology to transition to a zero emission fleet. Our administration together, all of us, is working to make that possibility
4: a reality.
0: So speaking of reality, what would be acceptable if you, could, if you had your, your crystal ball, your magic wand and poof, you could say, you know what, all of our nation's school buses are now electric. What's the timeline for you? And don't say next year. Well, the sooner the better. <laughs> no,
3: I, I no. The sooner the better. I mean, obviously, school districts have to plan, and they have to plan a year in advance. Even so, if we start now, then we're that much closer. And and I want to be both practical and realistic. But mm-hmm. there's again, I I just feel so strongly that there's no substitute for making sure that we can provide the best. Uh, environment for our children. And there are 25, 20 to 25 million children who ride a school bus every day and their bus drivers. And here in Fulton County, it's about 73,000. Hmm. Those are important numbers and that it's a priority that we must pay attention to.
0: In fact, there was a press conference held earlier today uh, with the Justice Department. I believe that you, you, you saw some of this. What did, what did they say?
3: Yeah, so uh, just a just a, a short while ago, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland and Administrator Michael Regan announced a new joint effort and creation of an Office of Environmental Justice. And it's very exciting because the Department of Justice is going to use its full enforcement powers to assure that all communities are treated fairly when it comes to environmental justice. I mean, of course, this was the announcement of it today. We don't have all of the details, Mm -hmm. but it sounds very exciting to me.
0: Almeida Cooper is a health policy expert who formerly served as the general counsel and corporate secretary for the Morehouse School of Medicine here in Atlanta. And she's also now the national field manager for Moms Clean Air Force and all advocating for electric school buses for our kids to get to school. Ms. Cooper, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker, although Daniel was filling in today again because Kevin is out bike riding somewhere, we think. We don't know. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, send me an email rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of the day's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash closer look. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. The Fed has raised its interest rates, so rates everywhere are going up, right?
3: I think people jump to a conclusion. They read a headline that rates across the board are going to move. And that just isn't true.
0: I'm Kai Rizdahl. Banking is a business, you know. We'll explain next time on Marketplace. This evening at 630 on 90.1 WABE.